0: Previously, on The Tony Kornheiser Show. So, if it's a family, it's like Paul's the oldest brother. And he's kind of bossing everybody around. Bossing John around. Bossing John around, because John is the perfect middle child. John is kind of carefree, and yet he's an insurrectionist. He's just kind of sitting there and George is like the youngest in the family and he's like why are the two older boys viewing me out of everything Ringo is the family pet <laughs> <laughs> the Tony Kornheiser show is on now that of course is our capsule review of the Beatles nine-hour movie <laughs> that's available apparently on Disney plus I, I said to my attorney last night I work for Disney. Shouldn't I get Disney Plus for free? And he goes, good luck. (laughs) So that's the end of that. This is a special show we're doing today. We're going to talk to my old and dear friend, Mitch Albom. Um, And originally, Mitch was supposed to be in Washington, D.C. tonight to do an event. That thing fell through. And I was really excited, as Mitch knows, because Mitch was going to come to the house this morning and I was going to put Mitch in the chair that Michael normally occupies on the far end of Uncle Benny's table. And then I was going to say, lean back a little bit and look to your right. Do you recognize anything? Because that would be the piano that Mitch played the last time he was in this house, which is about 25 years ago. Those of you who know Mitch Album as a great sports writer, as a great writer of nonfiction, as a great writer of fiction, may not know. And we'll get to this later in the show that all he really wanted to be in his life is a, is a rock and roll star. So you you have the piano ready at your house, right? You've got I, that.
1: I have a piano ready at my house. Yes, it's good. A few feet away. So we're
0: going to get to that. We're going to get to that. I'm happy about that. But let's start with the... Uh, I, I mean, I just think this is wonderful news. Your latest book, The Stranger in the Lifeboat, is number one on the New York Times bestseller list. And, and I, I wonder, you know... You've had that before. You've had number one, number one in fiction, <coughs> excuse me, and nonfiction. I imagine it's still a thrill. I imagine you don't get jaded. I imagine you you sort of feel like you're being approved when that happens.
1: All those things. Yeah, every one of those. Uh, you never get jaded. You never get tired. It's not like, books aren't like sports columns where after half a year, you can't even count how many you've done. I still mm-hmm. over, since Tuesdays with Maury, this is my 10th book, so... Each one still is, is is like a child, you know, and it's a big deal when it comes out. And yeah, if it gets the number one on the New York Times list, it's a really big deal. Um, but, you know, mostly it's the fact that you start to hear from people uh, after you've written a book that they liked it. They read it and moved them or something. It's a little like, like I said, you have a child inside and it's just you and that child for. A year or whatever and then you open the doors and everyone goes oh what a beautiful child (laughs) what a nice child and you say oh good I thought so too but I
0: wasn't sure um the famous writer Scott Fitzgerald famously wrote there are no second acts in America you've had second acts Mm. I mean that's it's you've had and I look I know how this works because I'm doing something now that I never intended to do Yes, but I'm still in the same field basically I'm in the sports field You went from sports writing, newspaper writing, columns, nonfiction, fiction. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about where you are now relative to where you started?
1: Well, first of all, I want your audience to know that uh, I started doing radio when it was not the fashionable thing for sports writers to do. It was the mid-80s, and I started to do this little five-minute show and I remember one morning we were at something or another I don't know where we used to travel and we used to see each other in the in the, in the restaurants or the hotels and stuff like that and we were talking and I got to, I said oh I got to go I I got to do this uh, thing on the radio for and you said oh Mr. Radio <laughs> oh, oh Mr. Radio has to go Mr. Radio and uh you've since uh grabbed that mantle from me and pretty much everybody else so uh yes that was the beginning of my second act but honestly Tony I, I've had third and fourth and fifth acts and, and the biggest uh second act for me wasn't so much going from sports writing to radio or television, sports reporters or stuff like that. It was Tuesdays with Maury. It yeah. was when I was and I you know, to to be perfectly honest, you and I have known each other a long time. I was I was just heavily driven ambition, 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 you know, during my thirties in sports and I had no other eyes for anything else. And then I saw My old college professor was dying from Lou Gehrig's disease on television he was talking to Ted Koppel and I uh I hadn't seen him in 16 years because I was so busy being ambitious and I was really close with him in college he wasn't just a guy I knew you know I I spent four years with him he was you know I ate at his house and and uh, you know traveled around the campus with him and you know he was he was like an uncle and so I went to go see him and one visit turned to two, and two turned to three, and three turned to all the rest of the Tuesdays that he had left in his life, and I ended up uh, writing a book to pay his medical bills. That was the only reason Tuesdays with Mori was ever written, and nobody wanted it. I got turned down pretty much everywhere I went. I uh, gave him the money for to pay his medical bills and thought that I would return to sports writing, and to be honest, I never really fully returned to sports writing after that.
0: It's very different. You have written Sports books, you wrote the book about the Fab Five. You knew those guys better than anybody. How different was writing a book like that to something that becomes, obviously, a a labor of love to write about your professor? When you write about him, how much harder was that to try to be objective about somebody you knew so well?
1: Well, the difficulty was probably uh, the advantage, because I felt so out of my element you know, all I'd ever written about always had a jump shot in it or a Yeah or a swing or something, you know, you know, when you write sports, there's always that paragraph you can get to with the numbers. And there's no numbers when you're writing about somebody dying from a you know, a terminal illness. So I just decided just keep it simple. I, I said, I, I don't know what I'm doing here. Uh so I'm just gonna tell what happened, put a lot of dialogue in between me and him and 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 not try to overwrite it because I'm out of my element. And I think by keeping it that simple, and Tuesdays with Mori ended up being really small. In fact, you know, it's a short, a small book, right? You've seen it physically, right? Yeah. Uh, I haven't, but, sure. but there's a reason for that. It was supposed to be, the contract was for a 300 page book. And I was so green to that process, I didn't even know. It. I just wrote 300 pages on a typewriter, you know, but it was like triple spaced. And yeah. when I sent it to them, uh, they called me up and they said, this is way smaller than 300 pages like 180 pages and I said well that's all I you know that's all there is Uh, I I said everything I wanted to say and they said ah don't worry about it we'll just make it a small book uh because if they had made it a regular size book it would look like a comic book you know and so that's why Tuesdays with Maury was such a small book and then every book I've ever put out since small has been a tiny book that's become my you know yeah, Trademark, But as
0: as we like to say in the trade, fifty million sales later, you know, I mean, that book is translated into a million languages. It's all over the world, and it it leads. I mean, I think you probably ask yourself this: Are you ever burdened by that? It, it, that when people meet you and they've read it and it's changed their lives? Because I've been with you when people said your book changed my life. Is that ever burdensome? That you think they expect you to behave or act in a certain way? It's not.
1: It's not burdensome, but it. It changed dramatically from you know I was 37 and I was on the sports reporters and so people would recognize me in airports and and they would always say hey who's going to win the Super Bowl you know and you'd get to yeah. keep walking and you'd yeah. go Patriots you know and just keep walking uh, and then all of a sudden after Tuesdays with Maury came out people would stop me and they'd say hey uh, my mother died of cancer and the last thing we did was read your book together. You mind if we talk to you? And you can't go Patriots <laughs> and just keep going. You <laughs> yeah, know, It yeah, doesn't work yeah. like that. And so you have to engage. And Tony, you've yeah, you've been with me. But uh, you know, if, and if I go to a like a book signing or, or a talk, I will engage in those sad stories. Sometimes two hundred times a night. And when you do it that, that much, what it does to you is you realize you become empathetic. You have to become empathetic, or else you just become jaded, and you become empathetic to the fact that pretty much everybody is walking around with some sadness or somebody that they're grieving or somebody who's sick in their life and whatever, and they, maybe they're just not showing it. But uh, if given a chance, they'd love to talk about it. And I, it just changed my perspective on things. It didn't wasn't a burden as much as I kind of came to expect that even that smiling person, even that cheering person in the in the Michigan football stands, even that person who's got their face painted two colors, has probably got a mother, an uncle, an aunt, a cousin or whatever who's, who's dying from a terminal illness or is struggling with something and they'll talk to you about it if they're give, given a chance. And it made me more empathetic to,
0: to the human race. We get, um, we get emails and occasionally we get emails and they basically say this, my fill-in-the-blank was dying and we listened to your show together and you gave us laughter and thank yeah. you. Yeah. And, you know, I don't, I don't read those on the air because they're so personal. I will mention a name and say thank you for this particular thing. But it Maybe. does on a much, much smaller scale than in your life. But it does. It always lets you know that your work is being absorbed, which is all you ask for. When you sit down to write or you sit down to talk, you don't know who the audience is. You just hope there is an audience. And when it becomes personal like that, it's always moving the books that you've that you've written since Tuesdays with Maury, they're introspective, they're hopeful, they're spiritual. They're actually spiritual. Is this a calling? Do you say, this is the kind of book I want to write because it expresses something in me that I want to share?
1: Yeah, uh, that's one way of looking at it, I guess. I, I think what happened after Tuesdays with Maury is... So many people said to me, as, as you pointed out, you know, boy, that book changed my life. Or, yeah. boy, there were so many lessons. Whatever, that you feel almost compelled to create something that at least can do a sliver of that again. Otherwise, that's why I never wrote another sports book. I've never written a sports book since Tuesdays with Maury. I wrote two of them in like three years prior to that. But they just felt so insignificant. Uh, I, I said, well, who, who am I going to – how am I going to help anybody with – with another book about a baseball player or you're not that there's anything wrong with a book about a baseball player. It's just, I felt, like you say, sort of called to, to continue to uh, put whatever lessons I kind of got from Tuesdays with Maury into some form, be it fiction or nonfiction in all the books that followed. And if you really look at them, in the nine that followed, there's a piece of Tuesdays with Maury in every book that I wrote after.
0: How are you with the word Spiritual.
1: I'm fine with it. I mean, uh, I think sometimes people use the word spiritual to avoid using the word religious uh, Mm -hmm. or faithful Mm -hmm. because they don't want anybody Mm -hmm. to think that they're off-putting or they're one uh, religion or another. You know, we used to say the word religious. We're we're old enough to remember that. Uh, But I, look, you know a little bit more about me than the average person. So you know that, you know, I have an orphanage that I operate in Haiti that I'm at every month with 53 kids that I adopted one of those kids, my wife and I, uh, when she had a brain tumor. uh, She lived two years with us before she died. You need to be spiritual in situations like that. You need to believe that there's something more, something bigger than us. Whatever it is, I don't ascribe or tell people to go to any one religion or faith, but I do believe in believing in something. You know, I do believe that we don't, we're not just worm food when we die. If we were, I mean, there would be no explanation for some of the suffering, no explanation for some of the things that I've seen people endure or that we've had to endure, uh, my wife and I in, in our lives. So, yeah, I guess I'm, I'm spiritual in that mm-hmm. way.
0: Do you, in writing these books, like you don't, you don't sit around all day and think of ideas for books, I would think. I would wonder, do you feel pressure to write another book? I mean, The Stranger in the Lifeboat, it's number one on the bestseller list, do you feel pressure to write another one? When you get an idea for a book, are they blasts of light? Or do you labor over the ideas? Is it as easy to write as a song? Is <laughs> it fully formed in your head? How, how no. do you do it? How does it work? Songs were always easier.
1: Uh, uh, it, it's harder than a song, but it's not the laborious process that you're, you're kind of uh, suggesting. I have lists of ideas of things that I want to explore and, and, and not enough years left in my life to get to all of them. The writer's block's never been an issue for me. Coming up with ideas never been an issue. Coming up with the time has always been the issue. And I it's probably because, Tony, I don't start with uh, plots. I start with, like, the idea I want to get across. So Stranger in the Lifeboat, for example, which is is a, is a... Is a you know, a, a high seas adventure, you know, for me, it's, it's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they're out of people out in the ocean and lost at sea. And I had to do all this research about, you know, how you survive in a life raft for days and weeks and all that. But it didn't start with, let, let me write a book about, you know, castaways. It started with, I want to write a book about help and how people ask for help in this world and how help arrives in kind of different forms that we, than we think it does. And once I had that idea, then it was like, all right, what what meat do I put on top of these bones, uh, and and that's the way you know that's the way the five people you meet in heaven was. I didn't want to write about heaven per se. I wanted to write a book right. about people who think they don't matter in the world, and how can I create something that shows that everybody matters? Ended up creating a, this whole conceit about heaven and go to heaven, but everybody thought, oh, he wants to write about heaven. No, it was it was to write about life on earth, uh, and so that's why I probably don't hit that wall. Maybe that some people do about, gee, I, I kind of wrote a story about this type of person before, or this kind of plot before, and I need to find something new. I, it's always putting, as I say, putting meat on bones.
0: Well, where do the ideas come from? In other words, is is every book your last book or in your mind? It's not your last book. There's always a next book. And how many ideas do come to you in the middle of the night and you, you think about them for a while and you say, no, that's not me. That's not going to work. Yeah, I...
1: A lot of ideas come to me in the middle of the night, the middle of the day, the shower, uh, exercising. Yeah. You know, it's just, The shower is always difficult because you don't, don't have any pens in there, but uh, <laughs> you have to try to remember. <laughs> it's hard to write something down in the shower. Yeah. Uh, but mainly the ones that I choose to pursue are the ones that uh, I feel, number one, uh, and, and usually I'm going through in some shape or form, uh, and number two, that I get a sense that other people feel. So I talk about it with other people, and, and I talk about an idea, and I think, did you ever go through this? Did you ever feel this? And You know, if seven or eight people say, oh, yeah, you know, it happens to me all the time, or I feel that mm-hmm. all the time, or I wonder that all the time, I go, yeah, I'm probably on to something that's fairly universal here, and let me see if I can create a story like that. Because we're, we're all, you know, when you want people to listen to the radio or you want to listen to the podcast, you want people to read your column, um, you want people to read your books. And it's the same thing, and so... You know, I, I never kidded myself that my life was so interesting or my issues are so interesting that I, I I should just write about them and let and people are just going to have to find their way to them. I always looked for things that other people were going through as well as me, uh, and and figured, okay, I'm 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 tilling soil here that other people, uh, you know, can grow things in as well, and that's usually how I decide if I'm going to pursue hmm. an idea or not.
0: I get asked a lot, um, people who. I mean, I've lived in the same place for 40 years and I did my work at the Washington Post in Washington, D.C., where I still live. So people know that, I, you know, older people know that I was a writer. And I am often asked, and this is different from you because you produce work. You know, you you write. I'm often asked, do you miss writing? And I say all the time, I miss having written. And, and, if, and if they're curious about that, I tell them writing is so hard. Mm. Compared to everything else I've done, it is so much harder. More satisfying, maybe, but so much harder. Do you feel that way? Absolutely.
1: I also am one of those people that says you should be writing, because I know, I know how good you are. And uh, when we when you stopped, we lost a really important voice and a really really good voice and a really funny voice. And uh, you know, there's nobody has really stepped into that void. I'm probably embarrassing you, but there, nobody nobody took over what Tony Kornheiser brought to the to the journalism and not just sports. I mean, you, you know, another thing that you teased me the hell out of when I started writing a column uh, for the, uh, uh, I don't forget what it was called at that point in our section, but it wasn't sports. Oh, Mr. Non-Sports. Oh, <laughs> Everything you teased me about, you did better I than me. I doing. Everything, right, end ended up me. doing and doing way better than I did.
0: Uh, I don't know. <laughs> all right, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back. Mitch Albom is going to play the piano. I'm Tony Kornheiser. You're listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show. This is the SeatGeek ad. They want me to talk about how I have the SeatGeek app, and it's the best way to get tickets for live events. Michael has the seat geek app. Nigel has the seat geek app. On the app right now. I'm not an app person, but tell the people <laughs> trying to, how to search it works. for
1: tickets for your uh, WFT playoff contenders well, right here. Well, they're
0: going to Well, you know what? It shouldn't be How about that home hard. field advantage yeah, last it night? It shouldn't be hard to get a ticket for their games cuz the entire upper deck was empty. <laughs> I see last what they night. did with the club level. <laughs> if you're the NFL, you feel bad about that. But if you're seat geek, you're thinking, "Here's an opportunity to sell some tickets lot to people of, who want them. A lot of them.
1: green light go.
0: SeatGeek is incredibly (laughs) popular with all kinds of people. In fact, it's the highest-rated ticketing app, whether it's concerts, baseball, basketball, football, festivals, or anything else. SeatGeek puts tickets from all over the web in one place to make buying simple. SeatGeek rates every ticket from 0 to 10 to make sure you're getting a good deal. Green means good, as Michael alluded to. Red means bad. You can get $20 off your first purchase with the promo code TONY at SeatGeek.com or on the SeatGeek app. That's promo code TONY for $20 off your first SeatGeek order. SeatGeek, get your seat in a seat. I like that line. Download the app today, and for God's sakes, people, use the code. <laughs> this is The Tony Kornheiser Show. The Tony Kornheiser Show. All right, we're back with Mitch Album. His latest book is The Stranger in the Lifeboat. You've heard about the creative process that he goes through. What you probably don't know is that he started out to be a rock and roll star. Um, how'd you become a, a rock? That's a, that's
1: a little, a little well, bigger than I was aiming. I just wanted to write and produce. I didn't want to be the star. I, As, as, as Lee Montville once said, I didn't want to be Dion. I just wanted to be one of the Belmonts. And, uh, you know, I, I wasn't, I wasn't looking to be, you know, front and center, but when I started out, you know, that's what you had to do. You had to have your own right. band. You know, I was in New York and well, first I was in Europe. You know that's where I I started playing music. Uh, I was in Greece, uh, but that's I don't know if I ever did. I ever tell you that story? No. When I was in Greece, you know that I no. I ended up uh, in. Uh, it was a crazy thing. I, I ran out of money. I was traveling with a with a with a buddy of mine, and he took all my money to go back home, and I got stuck without any money and 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 uh, a URL pass that didn't work, and so I ended up having to to uh, take trains. From uh, Brindisi, Italy, up all the way up through Italy, all the way up through Yugoslavia, which doesn't exist anymore, back down into Greece to try to get some money that had been wired to me by my folks in Athens. You know, I couldn't get to Athens, so it took me three days on trains with no money. I had a big food, and it was a really humbling experience. And and uh, I finally got to Athens, and and uh, the bank was closed. <laughs> and so I it was Friday. The bank was closed. I had to wait till Monday. So I had to give my watch and my camera to uh, a woman who had this like, little youth hostel just so that she would give me a bed to sleep right. in. And uh, while I was there, somebody read this ad from a paper saying piano player wanted for Luxury Island uh, in Greece. And I said, let me see that. And, and, and I, I had nothing to do for three days. And so I, uh, I went down to this interview. I was the only person who interviewed for it. And, uh, and, the, and there wasn't even a piano. The woman just said, are you a piano player? I said, well, yeah. And she said, do you drink? I said, do I drink? She said, yes. Yeah. You have a drinking problem? I said, uh, no, I don't have a drinking problem. Okay, good. Take this ticket. And she wrote up a, a ticket, an airplane <laughs> ticket, and she sent me to Crete. She sent me to Crete. I mean, back in those days, you know, they could write airplane tickets in offices. She gives me a ticket. I don't have any. All I'm wearing, it's like cut-off shorts and a T-shirt. Uh, she gave me a bunch of money. So I stopped on, on the way to the airport and bought a suit off the rack at some apart, uh, department store there, you know, they, they, and I got safety pins to pin it up because there was no time to tailor it. I've got on this plane. I, I, I land in Greece, um, in, in Crete. It's pitch black out. I don't speak any Greek. I hand a note to this uh, cab driver, and he goes, oh, okay, 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 gets in the car. We start driving around. It's, it looks like a nice island, you know, can't see anything. All of a sudden, he steers the car into the woods, and so I'm we're going like this path in the woods. I think, oh my God, I'm, I'm, I got like the serial killer uh, yeah. cab driver is going to kill me. And he, and, he, and I said these chickens start jumping up at the car and everything. He stops the car in the middle of the woods. And I see this house, and I realize he's taking me home with him. And he says, hey, come on, come, 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 come. And I come into the house, and he screams at his wife or something like that. And he's making me dinner because he's got an American in his cab. And so I point to my watch. I say, no, no, I have to go, I have to go. He says, oh, and doxy, and doxy, okay, okay. And he texts his wife. She grabs this big chicken and a watermelon and some feta cheese. And she gets in the car with us, and we take off together. She's feeding me over the over the back seat, she's giving me chicken and watermelon and everything. I'm having this whole meal wow. in the back of his cab. Finally, get to the uh, uh, place. It's this beautiful hotel. I walk in. I'm supposed to see this guy named Peter Papadopoulos, uh, and I you walk. Kidding up to with him. that name. That's no, not that's a his real name. name. Peter Papadopoulos. <laughs> Peter Papadopoulos. <laughs> Peter Papadopoulos. And he says, <laughs> okay. "You're the piano player." I said, "Yeah." He says, "There's a the piano." And there's this piano sitting in the middle of this lounge. It's a Friday night. There's a ton of people around. I have no music, so I just sit down and you know I just. I just play Misty, you know, like a hundred times or whatever, (laughs) whatever I could think of, you know, Playing, And he's watching, he's drinking. And then um, he he says, "Okay, uh, come with me uh, now. Come with me. And we go down to this taverna and people keep buying him drinks. I think this guy's sloshed and turns out it's his birthday. And in Greece, when it's your birthday, you can't refuse a drink. You know, somebody buys it for you. So he's drunk as a skunk. And he says to me, "Uh, you sing. And I said, well, you know, I sing a little bit. He says, go sing with the band. And it's like a Greek umpa band, you know? And uh, I said, I don't know anything. Go sing with the band if you want the job. So I have to go up to the band, and, and uh, I, I say to this piano player uh, who doesn't speak any English, I said, do you know any American music? He goes, uh, uh, Elvis Presley. I said, okay, Elvis Presley. Uh, he goes, blue suede shoes? I said, okay, blue suede shoes. That's fine, yeah. And the lights go out. And it's one of these things that, you know, blue, sweat shoes starts cold, you know, it's just, you know, one for the yeah. money, two for the yeah. So they hit this note, boom, and I go one for the money and the lights come on and I'm looking at a room full of people whose mouths are just dropped open. And I had one of those moments where I said, what the hell, you are never gonna be here again. You're going home tomorrow, you're not gonna take this job. Go for it, you know. So I just went nuts on the stage. I sang this, you know, those old blue sweatshirts. I went around to all the different tables and just shake back and forth. I get a standing ovation. I go back to the table, and the guy says, I'm hiring you as my singer and my piano player. And I said, Yeah, I'm going home tomorrow in my mind. And he says, I give you $400 American cash every week and i said okay i'm staying <laughs> you know yeah, and, sure. and that's what i did i flew home the next morning got my flew to athens got my stuff came back and i had the job and that's what i did every night there for the next 7 months uh, so my music career actually started in in this uh, little fishing village called agios nikolaos in in greece uh, and then i came back to america i gave up that job i had a little bungalow on the aegean sea you know all i had to do was play piano and sing once a night and they paid me cash, they all the food I wanted. If I ever went into town, everybody on the little part of the island knew me. and I never had to walk home because a car would pull up and the window would roll down. And they'd say, hey, Elvis, get in the car. Come on, we go. <laughs> you know? So uh, it was like the greatest existence. And of course, like an idiot, I gave it up because I wanted to get back to New York you know, and start my music career. And so I came to New York and then I just became another starving artist.
0: Well, that's I, I've never heard that story. It's a fabulous story, and you say you didn't want to be a rock and roll star, but I would tell you that anybody who ever sits at a piano and starts to play and starts to sing wants to be, at some point, a rock and roll star, and had you become a rock and... I mean, would you, you can do whatever you want now. You know you can, and I know you've been in the band, the Rock Bottom Remainders. I know you've done that, and, and we've talked about that a million times, but is there a part of you that says, you know what? Yeah, I'd like to do that. I'd like to be a rock and roll star.
1: Nah, not anymore. I like to write songs, and uh, I do, and I have, and I've, I've been lucky enough. I've had songs recorded by different people. Warren Zevon recorded a song by me, and uh, we had a song in an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie that my wife sang and stuff like that. But no, the the rock bottom remainders is enough. I do an Elvis impression with the rock bottom remainders, I do one or two songs, and that that's that's close enough. You're playing for literary, <laughs> a literary crowd is is about my speed at this age. Uh, but Can no, I this... lean on
0: you to just play the piano so people realize there is a <laughs> piano in your room?
1: You want me to play Walk the piano? Walk over,
0: roll right. over, whatever happens. Let me see. Roll over Beethoven, tell Krzyzewski here. the news. <laughs> uh, what do you got?
1: All right, let me see.
0: Pretend we're in Crete.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Okay. The piano is on the microphone. I mean, the piano. Was, the microphone's on the piano. The microphone's on
0: the piano. I yeah, hope it's. I hope your piano weighs more than that. Uh.
1: Okay. Can you hear that? All right.
0: Yes. Let's yep. See. Let's play one song. i play piano. half a song.
1: Okay. You shake my nerves and you rattle right my brain. Too much love drives a man insane. You broke my will, but what a thrill. The Goodness is great. great ball. I, I left the love a little, but I thought it was funny. You came along.
0: Boom, Hope you're life. standing up now.
1: Broke my mind. <laughs> I'm not standing up. <laughs> Hope you're doing the killer. It's <laughs> wonderful. Kiss me,
0: baby. Come on, Tony. Sing it. Ooh, mm, feels, feels Good. good. Oh, oh, my God. I got oh, to love, love you like, like a lover love should. should That's you're fine, fine. So, so, kind. so kind Got to, to tell, the tell the world that you're mine, 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 mine I tell them nails and I twiddle my thumbs
1: Get real nervous for the show's phone Come on, baby You're driving me crazy Good news and grace is breaking balls of fire
0: There'll be an audio tape of this It'll embarrass us for the rest of our lives That's wonderful See, you can do that You have that skill This is not a monkey playing This is a live <laughs> person it's great. It's Good great. Enough. It's great. <laughs> I always... That's definitely
1: the first time I did that on a podcast.
0: Well, so so this is like, here's the difference. Here's the difference between you and I, I think, or one of the many differences between you and I. And I think I've told you this story. I went to see the Bruce Springsteen play. Did you see that, your buddy Bruce Springsteen? Did you see that play by any chance? Uh, No. Okay. So I went to see it a couple of years ago on Broadway. And in the first 10 minutes of Bruce Springsteen going on stage, he talks about Seeing Elvis Presley as a kid on the Ed Sullivan show, he's five, he's six years old. And he says, and I knew right then and there, I wanted to be a rock and roll star. That's what I wanted to be. And I had a just complete, you know, melding into Bruce Springsteen at that point, because I knew when I was six or seven years old, that all I ever wanted to be was a sports writer. It's it. That's all I ever wanted to be. And I pursued that. And I did that. And I did it young. And it thrilled me to do that. You were a great sports writer, but that's obviously not what you wanted to be, or was it?
1: Oh, it was by, by that point, yeah. I mean, you know, you if you fail enough at music, you know, or something else, it changes your desires. You know, uh, you, you kind of say, well, that's not going to work out. Let me find something that I can get that feeling, but do it someplace else. And when I got into writing... For me, it was creative, but it still rewarded your effort, you know, whereas I remember being a musician in New York and auditioning guys for my band, and, you know, guys were coming down in their 40s and 50s, and they were auditioning for my band, and I'm like, yeah. whoa, I don't want to be that guy
0: yeah. 20 yeah.
1: years from now, auditioning for someone. So so when I got into sports writing, and there was a, a advancement, you know, like if you were good, somebody noticed you, and they they wanted you to do more of it. Whereas I remember waking up in music and nobody wanted me to do anything, you know. So you want to go where you're, where people want you, you know, and and want to see your work. And I think that that's what drew me. To, and once I was sports writing, I didn't think about music anymore. In fact, I never wrote anything about music ever until uh, probably a good twenty five years after I was out of it, maybe even. A little more. I wrote this book called "The Magic Strings of Frankie Presto," which I love that book. Yeah, loved it. I, I loved love that it. book too. It's and it's like twice the size of any other book that I've ever written because it was like a, a lifetime's worth of love of music uh, being thrown into one novel, you know.
0: I love that book. I should tell people that when we used to go to Super Bowls together, because Super Bowls are, in essence, a sports writer's convention, I assume they right. still are. When we used to go to Super Bowls, we would find a piano, we would drag Mitch to the piano, and Mitch would literally play, literally play until his fingers bled for dopes <laughs> like me and Mike Litwin and Leslie Visser and Alan Greenberg. And yeah. and we would we would all try to sing. Mitch was the only one who could really sing. But we would all try to do that, and we would stay up very, very late in the night to do that. And and that was such a great joy for me. Do you still i Do you still love sports? Do you still love it? You're away from it now to a degree. You, I mean, you have your hands in it. Do you still love it?
1: Uh, not as much as I used to. Uh, I I you know there are moments. I was at the Michigan Ohio State game. And that was great, you know. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's a, yeah. to be at a moment like that. But it has to, you know, a Wednesday, we always used to talk about, you know, the Wednesday column, you know, go out and find a, yeah. you know, go out and write about the pitcher who's won two games in a row on, your, on a Wednesday. Uh, there's, that doesn't hold any interest for me anymore. But big moments or big stories, sure, there's still the great appeal. I still watch plenty of sports. But I do want to say that you were amongst all the uh, all the scribes there, uh, not only, first of all, you have a good voice, and secondly, you know all the words. Like, I do you remember all the words. all of them. So
0: there was, no, you know,
1: I, 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 you know, uh, uh took a walk and passed your house late, late last, last night. night. You know, you know, yeah. you know what comes sure. next, right? Silhouettes on the shades. All sure. the shades Got were it.
0: taken it from there, uh, pulled and drawn way down tight. See, yeah, I no, could I can that do that on
1: any song from the fifties and sixties, and you would continue yeah. it.
0: Yeah, I once, um, I once got a call. I had moved to Washington. I was in Washington for about a year. I got a call from Lupica, and he was writing a column, and he said, "You, you remember?" So this is like I don't know, nineteen eighty, and he said, "You remember? You remember that song by the Love and Spoonful, right?" And I said, "Yeah, sure, yeah." And he says, Could you just, you know, give me the words to that? And I go, Where do you want me to start? And so I did, (laughs) you know, I did all the words because they are, I don't remember last week, but they are imprinted on my brain. Every song from the 50s and the 60s. Every song. I don't remember you know, the, the names of the songs, but he says, because he was writing a column, Do You Believe in Magic? And I right. gave him every single word. And after a while, he said, enough, enough. enough. I said, well, wait, let me, <laughs> let me just give you the rest of it. Yeah. What, you know, what about the bridge? <laughs> it, yeah, it, so it's, it's in my head. Yeah, it's in my head, and it's in your head, too. You totally. know, and, and even, even stuff, because when I grew up, my parents always listened to Frank Sinatra. I know every Frank Sinatra song. Every, it's just you know you you just the first note starts and and you just you know it right I mean you're the same right. way you know every song 100%. you know
1: if I know it's if I hear the first if I hear the first note I I can play it from there
0: yeah. yeah it's name that tune yeah I can name that tune before you even give me that tune I know the tune yeah <laughs> it's a good line by Lee though it's a really good line I don't want to be Dion I want to be one of the Belmonts that's yeah. a pretty good line Gotta we will take good. another break and we will come back with Mitch album I am Tony Kornheiser. This
1: is the Tony
0: Kornheiser Show. This is the Policy Genius ad. Get your property cold weather ready by making sure you have the right insurance coverage. Policy Genius can help you find home and auto coverage similar to what you have now, but at a lower price. It's never a bad time to find ways to bundle your home and auto insurance and save with Policy Genius. Head to Policy Genius, answer a few questions about yourself and your property Policy Genius will show you price estimates for policies that fit your search and help you understand your options. Policy Genius has saved customers an average of $1,250 per year over what they were paying for home and auto insurance. And Policy Genius has saved new customers an average of $350 per year on home insurance. Their licensed experts will help you understand your options and apply for a policy. The Policy Genius team works for you, not the insurance companies. So head to policygenius.com to get your free home and auto insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. This is the Tony Kornheiser Show. He said he could play mystic. As we wander through this wonderland alone, Never knowing our right foot from our left, our hat from our glove. Our Misty are too much in love. Damn it, I can do that too. Isn't that <laughs> awful, Mitch? I can do that too. I haven't heard Misty in, I don't know, how many years. The original Misty, if I'm not mistaken, was Errol Garner. Errol do you Garner think that's on true? the piano. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Johnny Mathis, I
1: think, in the uh, Johnny Mathis.
0: Very yeah. scary. All right. Uh, We're back with Mitch Albom. His new book is The Stranger in the Lifeboat. It's the number one book, best-selling book um, on the New York Times bestseller list. I have read about a third of it. Made me cry a couple of times in the middle. I think I told you that about a week ago. Made me cry in the middle. Tell the people about the book, uh, the Lost at Sea book, and and tell them who's the star sitting in the lifeboat.
1: Well, so the premise is there's this really rich yacht owned by, you know, one of the richest guys in the world. He invites all his famous friends and celebrities and business people on it for a week-long cruise. And next to the last night, uh, out in the middle of the ocean, it mysteriously explodes. And uh, everybody's killed except 10 people, five of whom are the rich guests, including the owner of the boat, and five of whom are like workers, uh, staff and cooks and things like that. And they manage to get into a lifeboat and they're floating out in this lifeboat for three days and nobody's coming for them and there's no help in sight and they're running out of food and water and they see sharks and, you know, they're crying out for help. And all of a sudden they see this body floating in the water and they pull it into the boat and it's a, uh, a guy, a young guy, kind of nondescript, average-looking guy, and they pepper him with questions. He doesn't have anything to say. And finally one of the passengers says, well, thank the Lord we found you. And he says, I am the Lord and it's what happens after that, you know, they basically roll their eyes and think he's some guy who banged his head, and they say, yeah, sure, you're the Lord, what are you doing here? He says, well, haven't you been calling me? I came because you called me, and they say, oh, sure, okay, right, well, I guess you're going to save us then, huh? And he says, I can only save you if all 10 of you believe I am who I say I am at the same time, and it follows what happens with them, you know, out on the water as things get more desperate and, and uh, some of them start to believe maybe he is what he is and others refuse to. And it's kind of a study in, in like I said a little earlier, uh, how we deal with help. And when we ask for help, if it doesn't come exactly when we want it, how we want it, you know, where we want it, do we basically deny that it is what it is?
0: You deal with help all the time in your life. You mentioned earlier you have an orphanage. Yeah. You have it in Haiti. Haiti is, as everybody knows, one of the poorest, if not the poorest country in the world. Uh, Wrecked by earthquakes on what seems to be a frequent basis, wrecked by political mayhem where people get assassinated. You're there a week, a month, every month of your life. Why do you do this? For the children that are there uh,
1: those kids are are my kids uh in my mind and not mine you know from a from a biological point of view but my responsibility and we have 53 children at any given time uh, a number of them now have graduated and they're in college up here in america every one of our kids has a college scholarship waiting for them and four of them are already up here in in school who i see every weekend they're at our house and uh you know, if you if you came with me or anybody came with me one time, you'd come back to. Uh, the kids are amazing. Uh, many of them have been left to die out in you know under a tree. Uh, one of our kids was just abandoned, you know, left there, and somebody found him. He was he was six weeks old. Another couple of kids were left in malnutrition centers or medical clinics. They were somebody dropped them off, and nobody ever came back for them, and they lived in the hallways for two years and. Their stories are so tragic that you can't help but be moved and say, I, if I can help them, how can I not help them? How can I not take care of them? We've had kids who we've had to invent names and birth certificates for. I mean, there's no identities on them whatsoever. And these kids, they grow up and they thrive. They're, they're happy and they're joyous and they're smart and they're uh, grateful. And so uh, my time there is the best time of my life. And, and I sleep better there on a four-inch mattress you know, and and an old pillow than I ever do in my nice home here in the United States, Uh, because you sleep at night there knowing that you're making a significant difference in in children's lives.
0: Where does this come from? Is it something as a kid? Is it something from your family? Where does it come from? Because not everybody does it.
1: Uh, I don't really know the answer to that. I mean, my parents did it. uh, And they were, they always helped out whenever they Needed to. I didn't go searching for it. I didn't. I didn't. You know, wake right. up one day and say, "Let me wander the world and find you know the most, <laughs> the poorest, roughest, most violent and dangerous place I could possibly go to, and let me just start going there every month." It's. I'm one of these people, Tony, that just believes what gets put in front of you gets put in front of you for a reason. I'm one of those people that if I'm walking down the street and there's a there's a homeless person on on the street, I'll always give them money. Um, will I walk six other blocks to go find? Other homeless people were there? No. I, I'd love to say that I would, but that's not. But but if somebody's in front of me, I just figure there's a reason they're in front of me. And the same thing happened with Haiti. I uh, I got asked to go down there by a pastor who had run this orphanage who thought it had been destroyed and, uh, right after the earthquake of 2010. And we went down there, and, and it turned out that it hadn't been destroyed, but it had been overrun. And I started you know, falling in love with the kids, and I started bringing people back from Detroit to help build the first toilets, the first showers, the first kitchen, the first school, and eventually, this guy who was in his 80s, he, he told me he didn't have any money to run it, and uh, and he was really old, and, and in one of those moments that, you know, you look back and you say, what was I thinking? I said, well, I do I could, I could probably run this place. I run some charities in Detroit. How hard could it be, you know? And he goes... Uh, Praise Jesus, Hallelujah! Here it is. (laughs) That was that was pretty much it, and we haven't seen him. He's passed away since then, and and I've been running it ever since. So it kind of, I don't know, it's just put in front of me, and um, you know, I just don't shy away from those things when they're put in front of me.
0: I should tell people that um, you do a lot of charity work uh, in the Detroit area, another one of the poorer cities of the United States of America. You do a lot of charity work. You do a lot of. You have businesses that all the money ends up going to charity. Right. And, you know, you're good friends in sports writing like uh, Anthony Irwin, Kornheiser and David Michael Litwin. We don't do that. We may give some money here and there to people and we may do our best efforts to help other people. But it's not close to what you do. And I wonder, and it, it's always, always made me wonder, if it's made you in any way a judgmental person. If you look at your peers and you go, why aren't they doing this? If you, if you are judgmental or do you have to guard against being judgmental? Hmm. No, I, I
1: have never been asked that question before. But no, I, I've never felt that. I mean, I've known you and Mike and, and lots of other people. And yeah. I just figure everybody does things in their own way. And they're, they're probably doing things that I don't know about. Uh, you know, we didn't have children Tony and uh, mm-hmm. you know you you have two kids and yeah. the the amount of time that it takes to raise kids uh, that is <laughs> charitable work <laughs> in a certain sense. I mean that is giving to the world, raising a family or doing honest labor. You know, I I was one of those people that we got married. We didn't we didn't end up having kids. We tried, but we weren't able to. And you know, like I said about this book, *The Stranger in the Lifeboat*, it's about whether your prayers are answered when you want them or maybe later or not how you want them. Well, 15, 20 years after we prayed that we would have kids, I ended up taking over an orphanage and, and yes. then, and then and you we have, have 50, we have 53 yes. kids and then we ended up adopting one of them. And, and, and she was, you know, slept in our bedroom for two years and we traveled around the world trying to find a cure for her, for, for her brain tumor. And we had a family that we had prayed for. So, I, I, I've never been resentful. Um, I wouldn't even know why I would be resentful towards other people uh, if they're not doing certain things i, I, I not at all uh, I, 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 It's its own reward, honestly, and it, um, I just try to get people to come with me like I've taken a lot of people to Haiti over the course of the last twelve years um, who have traveled with me, including the actor Brad Whitford. Um, uh, oh sure I, yeah he's come with me then he brought his kids then his kid his son ended up working there and uh, I always say like if you come you, you'll see what I see and, and they do so now I'm more about just inviting people to come along but I don't see any reason to be judgmental of other people's efforts I think everybody gives in the way that they can
0: and so you'll go out to promote a book right You will. you will go out and you will be questioned and you'll do a great job do people bring this up? Do you bring it up? Do you say, "Look, there's more to me than just this book," or do you or do you wait? And if nobody brings it up, it's okay, and you just move oh, no. on to the next uh, thing.
1: I, I don't. I wouldn't bring it up, but but people okay. people tend to know about it, right? You know, uh, it's funny. People they ask me about. I wrote a, the previous book to this was called Finding Chica, and it was it was a nonfiction book, and it was about our little girl that we adopted from Haiti. And uh, I don't. Ever have to bring that up, and people always say, "I'm sorry about chica or you know or or you know I saw those videos of Chica or whatever and um no i don't I don't ever have to talk about it they 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 already know, and if they don't know it's the, then they're not there for that you know, and <laughs> they want to hear a, about a novel or whatever and you know there's there's plenty of time and I get plenty of attention tony i don't I don't need any more than you know or for anything else.
0: That's funny. Um, I, I mean, I'm in, I am in. feel the same way. I feel that I am the center of attention almost always in my life. I would miss it. I would. When, if, if it wasn't there, I would miss it. I don't know that I'd be like Mick Jagger as the story goes, walking downstairs in a hotel in Memphis in a dress because nobody had recognized him for three days <laughs> and he wanted to make sure that happened. But I would, I would miss that. And I would miss all of the retinue stuff. I would miss that, but I'm okay with it. You know, I'm I'm okay sitting down and not being the center of attention. And yeah. it took that for me took a long time. I wondered, did it take a long time for you? Did you? Because we all like it. We, you love the sound of applause, don't you? Yeah. I do.
1: Yeah. Um. But like I said, I've had that in my life. I've had it on stage. Uh, yeah. in Greece, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, and I've had it, I've had it on stage uh, with Bruce Springsteen at the Roxy Theater with the uh, yeah. Rock Bottom Remainders. And, you know, at some point you start to recognize that that uh, it's always going to be something bigger that you could want. There's always going to be the next level that you could say, well, I got this, but I want the next level. I got this, but I want the next level. And I've been very blessed that I don't have that gene. You know, like I, I, I had it, it was it, it like I said, it was earlier in my life ambition was my driving force but i I think uh loss sort of changes your perspective and um, I've lost a lot of people in my life, you know, not just Maury at a young age, and I had an uncle who was kind of a father to me who I lost when I was twenty two years old and my mother and my father and our little girl and many other people and and I think that when you have loss, you can either uh go one of two ways. You can become very bitter and talk about all the things you don't have, including the attention that you want in the world. Or you can try to find a, uh, you know, some kind of sense of appreciation. And actually, there's a there's a moment in this, in this new book, The Stranger in the Lifeboat, where one of the, you haven't gotten to it yet, but one of the passengers asks this God character the ultimate question that you would ask if you got a minute with God, which is, you know, why do people have to die? And in this case, he's, He's, he's crying about his wife and saying, you know, why did you take my wife? Why did she have to die? And the response is, everybody on earth always says, why did you take my loved one? Maybe a better question is, why was I given my loved one? What did I do to deserve or, or merit their love, their attention, their, the sweet memories that we had? And Didn't you have that with your wife, he says. and He said, I had it every day. And he said, well, those memories are a gift, but their absence isn't a punishment. You know, I, I know that you cry when people on earth die and leave the earth, but I can assure you those people aren't crying. And, you know, I wrote that for me as much as as for anybody else, because that's how I've had to deal with the loss of a child. Um, you know, I was very angry when that happened and and bitter at the universe and... You know, how can there be a benevolent God when that can't be benevolent to a seven-year-old girl who had to live through an earthquake and lost her mother and and, and then had a brain tumor? How much more do you have to throw at a little child? Uh, But after four or five years, I realized that we were lucky to have her. And while she only lived seven years, there are people, there are parents who get their kids for three years. There are parents who get their kids for one. There are parents who get their kids for 20 minutes, and then they pass away. And so when you start to look at things, in a sense of you know like I appreciate that I have them and 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 i'm grateful that I got what I got then you 're not hungry for more attention you're you're basically like i 'm grateful that I got what I got you know i 'm mm-hmm. grateful I got the attention that I have had in my life that's been fine and 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 really grateful that i've had the people that I miss uh that I had them in my life, and so i i don't know it's probably a little deeper answer than you were asking but I just think if you can live in a, in a sense of appreciation, instead of a sense of what am I missing, you're always going to feel a little more comforted, you know, a little better about your situation.
0: You're a good friend. You're a good man. Thank you for being on. I appreciate it. Thanks. I hope the book does great. The name of the book is The Stranger in the Lifeboat. It's available everywhere you buy books. Let me thank today's sponsors, SeatGeek and Policy Genius. Remember, you can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and Odyssey. And if you get the show through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. And he's playing us out. How great is that? Thank you, Mitch. Mitch album, boys and girls. We're back tomorrow.